0: Welcome to the media cat magazine podcast. Thank you for tuning in for the next in our series rebel with a cause with me, Opal Turner for this series, we are talking about the relationship between creativity and strategy, or in my other words, art, science and logic, all because it's my pet theory that strategy and planning can be a creative's secret weapon and vice versa, and that we overly separate the disciplines in our industry. So today we have the lovely Stuart Lambert, co-founder of Blurred, a ESG and purpose advisory. And absolutely fun fact, Stu is also the husband of our previous guest. So shout out to Joe. We bloody love a power creative couple in this house. So welcome, Stu. So happy to have you.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Edwell. It's lo- lovely to be here.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. I'm gonna dive right in because I have so many questions for you. Thank <laughs> you. So, before we get into blood, because there's so much to do with blood, but before we get into that, can you just give us, you know, a lovely little top line on your career up until then?
1: Yes, um, I started out in pure cons, um, corporate cons consultancy. Um, worked at a, a small PR agency, then uh, moved to a big PR agency, uh, and then found myself at uh, the biggest PR agency globally for where I was for um the best part of a decade um I, I wore a number of hats there so I well, I think at various points I was a head of consumer technology and uh um a sort of global account lead for Microsoft uh, and then I ended up in the consumer brand practice there doing a sort of hybrid strategy and creative director role which um which I, which I think is sort of um, very relevant for your for your theory that you just talked about, um, and then uh, and yeah, and that sort of um, that ended in twenty eighteen, and uh, and then Blurred began. That year. Blurred was born.
0: Birthed into existence, and how did you get into the industry in in the first place? Was it something that you aimed to get into, or was it more of a I need a job and here is a.
1: Yeah, definitely more the latter. Um, my, I think I think that was the case. It certainly was back then the case with most people in the sort of comms industry. I think a lot of people fell into it. Um, I think as the as the discipline of communications consultancy has evolved and become um, more of a more of a a, a craft and a discipline, I, I think people very much go into it with a, a clear aim of. Um, of doing so, but no, I was, I was a, an English English graduate that had no idea what I wanted to do other than write books and um, be a guitarist. And it turns out it's really hard to do those things. <laughs> so I realized the need of the job, and uh, I wrote lots of letters to various companies in London and told them I was good at making tea, um, which is, that's actually true. And uh, and uh, and yeah to get a job.
0: It is just so important to be able to make a good cup of tea, in my opinion. Not that I'm like disgustingly disgusting but <laughs> I am. Um. And so you mentioned that you had like technology roles and you worked with Microsoft. And how how did that mix of things come about? Because in my head, at least, and it's probably partially because of where the industry is right now, technology lives quite separately from the creative and strategy spaces how how did that kind of process come about
1: yeah I, it's a really weird one i look back at at the time it felt really organic you know i'd um i'd been doing a whole mix of corporate and b2b comms work in my previous job at the time between whatever that was 20, 2005 to 2010 um and there was sort of a headhunter to come and join um Weber Shamwick specifically to lead lead this Microsoft work, um the sort of consumer facing bit of it, which was not actually my background, but um but but leave that across Amir um which felt like something, you know, exciting to do. I've always been a bit of a Microsoft fanboy, which is a well, maybe a maybe a sad admission, but uh I'm proud of it. Um so so I so I enjoyed that. Uh worked with some really good people. And then um yeah because it was sort of consumer brand work for Microsoft. I sort of found myself moving into that consumer brand world a little bit. and i and I just um realized that what I was better at than other things was the um was the strategic thinking, planning process um and and I was reasonably decent to coming up with ideas. so I sort of I wanted to do that that whole piece. and um and and not separate it out. And I was lucky enough that at the time I worked with people who were willing to sort of shape that that slightly custom custom uh, role for me, which I did for a uh, you know I did a few years at um, at that agency.
0: It's 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 interesting though as well because you didn't just do strategy and creative. You were you were leading on both at the same time, is my understanding. And so I obviously think of, you know, from the aforementioned ramble, um, strategy is the kind of logic and science and creativity is the kind of art and emotion, or at least to a degree, and I'm I'm very aware that a lot of others think of it that way, but do you have a kind of philosophy while you were doing both? Did you develop a kind of new understanding of of each of the disciplines and, and how you could Make them work together. I mean, I imagine it was a serious lo- learning process if you were just working with the team around you to make it happen. It
1: was, it was, and I learned very much by doing it and trial and error and listening really closely to when I was in the room with, you know, at the time, really senior planners. Or you'd be in the room with advertising agencies, and their their planners would be presenting, and I, I, I just always consciously listening. And I, I, know I have a very logical brain, so I was obsessed with sort of. Um, the chart, you know, the the sort of process and the the diagrams that 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 people use to um to explain and uh, and um, communicate the 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 sort of logical process you had gone through to get to that to get to that conclusion or get to that solution, and uh, and sort of just by trial and error, you sort of develop your own way of doing that. Um, and I think the, what's interesting about it is I've always been um. You know, I've always loved writing. I've always wanted to, to, to write and to, you know, I've got a novel on the go that's been on the go for a long time. Um, but I, I'm, you know, I'm sort of a natural storyteller. It's what I enjoy doing. And I always think of that as it is a really logical strategic process. It's very much a, you know, to, to plan that out, you know, you, you have to have a, you know, Classic in in creative writing terms, you know, beginning, middle, and end, five act structure, or whatever. But in but in in sort of professional industry terms, um from a strategy and planning point of view, you have to make a you have to have a really differentiated observation at the beginning. This is true, You you told us in the brief that this is the problem. Actually, it's this when we've looked at it. Which means if that is true and it is, then it means the opportunity is really this. And if that's true and it is then the solution could be this, and this is how we could bring it back. So I, I see it always as a, a really linear logic process. Um, and the, the art of getting that down, you know, if you're in good old PowerPoint, each slide should, should take you through that, that, um, that sort of logical argument. It's always an argument that you're putting together. Can I make it inarguable? Can I convince, persuade the people in the room? Like a lawyer does in a courtroom. You know what I mean? Like, Just No that. room to um to get lost. No room to you know, you've got to be really hone in on, on keeping that argument crystal clear so that the your audience in the room has no scope to get distracted or lose lose the, the thrust of the argument at all or you know, or disagree with something because actually you're you're nailing every point and backing it up and substantiating it. So for me that's you know, strategy and planning is a absolute logical process. And then when it gets to the creative, I think why I loved doing both things together was because I think I, my philosophy, as you as you put it, is very much that the, the, the creative is part of the strategy process. Well, there's two that mean different things with creative, right? And I think there's a uh, the creative sort of the ideation process, the coming up with a, a solution I think in terms of solutions rather than ideas because a little bit more concrete. And then there's the craft of actually bringing that solution to life. And the the first part, the, the, the ideation, the solution finding, for me, that that is part of the strategic process. You've identified a problem. You've highlighted what the opportunity could be. You've proposed a solution, and it's a creative solution. Um, and I love doing that because it's part of this linear argument and I didn't like leaving it unresolved for someone else to do. Well, when it gets to the the craft bit, that's when there's an art to it, and that's, you know, it's coming to life through film, or it's coming to life through photography, or it's coming to life through copywriting. That's where the the other type of sort of creative skill set comes in.
0: But why would you leave the story at the fourth act?
1: Exactly, yeah. Well, I think so many agencies are structured that way. It's really interesting to so me. I I found it fascinating that you'd sort of it's just, you end up with this sort of baton passing
0: mm.
1: where the planner and the strategist, yeah, they'll take you up to act three or act four if you're lucky, where and then they leave it, they hand that baton over to another team to resolve it. You would you would never do that in a in a book. You would never have one author do one bit, and then uh, well, it would, it, you could, but it would be a sort of amusingly disjointed experience. And I think you see that. You see, or I saw that in deck so many times, mm. where one team would do, they'd put up a load of charts and data that that they'd pass off as insights, which it isn't. It's just a load of information that they're dumping, and they'd call that the strategy section. Yeah. And then they, then you get this moment. Right. Here's for the here's here's, here's the creative and they hand over to another presenter and it's been written by someone else. And there's just a massive disconnect. Yeah. I, the, the ideas that then get presented have very little to do with all this stuff that was presented up front. So that's happening less and less now. I think, um, you know, the, the the industry's gone a lot a lot better at integrating all this stuff, but it it, it was something I observed and experienced so much that I, 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 I knew there was a better way. Yes.
0: It's funny, though, isn't it? Because I, I, I can really relate your experience of it just kind of it seems obvious to me that they kind of happen in tandem. Like as you explore the strategy and the, you know, you really d- define that problem, of course, your brain jumps to starting to come up with solutions like that's that's how brains work. No. um. So it's it is strange how separate. They've become to me because I physically can't imagine working in that kind of separated way.
1: I think so much of it is language, though. I think on vocabulary, I think we conflate creative with art. And look, there's a lot of frustrated artists, maybe, in the creative, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, advertising and PR and marketing world. And the truth is, you know, we say we're storytellers a lot of time. We're not, we're not, we're not. J.K. Rowling, we're not George R. We're, we're actually we're, we're communicators and we're sellers of ideas but that's more of a, I believe at least, that's more of a well-constructed argument that you persuade it's more, like we said before, more like how a lawyer works. When I think of creativity in our world I think of it more as a process more akin to how a designer works you know, how an architect works, how an engineer works. I've got a brief the client has asked me to solve this problem or help them solve this problem. Mm. I need to work through that problem and help discover and illuminate, and then get them excited by what a solution could be. And there's never just one; right, there's all sorts of different things. How that solution then comes to life creatively or artistically through film or copywriting or you know, however, uh, however you want to do. Now, that's a that's that's a n- another stage of the process, but. But the original the initial coming up with the solution yeah this is how this is how architects work this is how engineers work because is, i, don't, I think a better analogies
0: we're not we're not solving kind of ephemeral problems we're solving quite concrete challenges yeah. with you know key performance indicators the things that we can measure
1: exactly
0: and yeah. so it's not you know it's not often that you get a, a lovely brief that goes just people feel better I mean that dope, yeah. oh, but it's yeah. more akin kind to art, isn't it? And so in in the process of kind of figuring that out, was there any I mean it sounds, you know, we're saying that it, it kind of came quite naturally, but was there any specific kind of challenges or joys that you found in in building that that role for yourself that encompassed both? And, you know, was was it the team around you that you think gave you the ability to do that or or was it just kind of a you know different...
1: the joy came from just being able to you know your day job being working through that process or It was a satisfying process to just to um, interrogate a problem and get to a solution and then successfully sell it to a client uh, and oddly i was i was less bothered about whether we actually got to bring it to life the, the creative the true creative team that's what they really wanted to do i I would I counted it as a win if if the client had bought the bought the argument and um and and sort of bought that uh, logic and that feeling of what it would be like to work with me and us. So that that was always where my satisfaction came from. I, I mean, in in reality, I ended up doing a lot of new business work because that's that's um, that's fundamentally you know how you go and win a pitch, isn't it? You, have the best argument in the room, the most compelling thing, the thing that excites them the most, the thing that they, they find inarguable, you know, the thing with the smartest insight, whatever it is. So that's what I um, That's what I ended up doing a lot of at that time. And um, I think the challenge came, the challenge was more around most businesses and, and the agency I was working at at the time was the same, need to sort of structure themselves or want to structure themselves in a very specific way we you know there was a lot of pressure to pick one of those things strategy or creative you know we've got a strategy team we've got a creative team we've got a media team we've got a client service team um you kind of can't be this anomaly you've got it you've got to you've got to fit in which one do you want to be in and i did struggle with that because i sort of want to do all of those (laughs) all of those things but i definitely wanted the strategy and the creative but that doesn't fit the mold of the of the business structure. So, um, so that, that was where the challenge came from. Um, but now, uh, sort of, you know, having, having, uh, helped found something new, I, am more master of my own destiny. So.
0: Exactly. And let's, let's get into that because I'm, I'm fascinated by the prevalence of kind of purpose-driven motivation within people who are multidisciplinary from my very, very small sample. but. I think it's really interesting and much more prominent than I was actually expecting. So, you know, how, what, and why did you did you start blurred? Um, I think that the three
1: or the four of us um, who who were there at the beginning and 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 set it up, well, certainly Nick and Katie and I, all come from you know some sort of PR agency background. Um, I think we all had a a shared disillusionment with the superficiality of a lot of the work, even when it's ostensibly good work, and you you know you have the supposed validation of some award wins and things. I think we all felt, you know, what's the real impact we're driving here? What are the real outcomes of this? Really, if we're honest, and uh, and there was a bit of a there was a belief that we could just do something different and better, um, and just go deeper. With this stuff but look, that was a sort of founding principle of of blur that we wanted to ditch ditch all the jargon and the things that distract or the artificial distinctions between consumers and corporates and all this language that the real world doesn't use um internal comms versus external comms and and sort of and that was the initially that was sort of what the blurred name was about that blur the lines between things. I think what happened, that the the business now is very different to what the business was when we founded it. Um, I think what happened over those first couple of years as we got up and running, motivated by wanting to do work with depth, we very quickly came to the realization that if if you genuinely want to do work with depth um, and really begin to understand what true company purpose with a capital P is and what it, it mustn't be, then you you are sort of by definition doing work that is is in the sustainability or as we've come to use the, the ESG or ESGP as we call it purpose and ESG um, space because you I just want to work with companies that have a sincerity of intent to tackle these problems meaningfully measurably tackle them and drive positive impact for people and planet and that 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 just that was an organic. Honing, I suppose, of the of the 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 philosophy of, of blurred, and we we sort of got a quite clear argument about what we believe and what we're set out to do, um, and uh, and yeah, it's uh, it sort of grew from there, and I, I think what blurred means now is more that we are because because we're really trying to help companies be better before we even think about communicating it. Um, we are blurring the lines between management consultancy, sustainability consultancy, and commerce consultancy, and that's 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 really unusual. And it's a massive challenge to build build a business to do those three things, and you know hire the right people that can do all of that stuff. Um, and if you'd have said to me five years ago that's what I'd be doing, I'd have laughed and thought it was impossible. But we're 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 here doing it, so it's. Um...
0: I'm intrigued. How how did your specific skill sets kind of transfer into the into the process of of setting up blood but also how you know cuz like philosophically how you describe yourselves that that's that's clear but how did the processes kind of change in in that time period other than obviously you've you've added a bunch of stuff that you need to do at the same time How do you think that was affected by your skill set and obviously your co-founders as well? Um, And do you think that had a part to play? Because you were like, well, I'm not more, you know, subconsciously, I'm more than one thing. Maybe the agency needs to be more than one thing.
1: Um, Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. I I think it goes back to that initial motivation that we were so determined to do something different to what we'd all been doing for the last twenty years, because we've sort of been there and done that. You know, Nick had Nick had already founded a, an incredible business, that, you know, Unity, that was at one point one of the, the most award-winning sort of um, comms agency in 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 London. You know, she, she, we'd sort of been there and done interesting things. We were determined to, to push ourselves out of our comfort zone. So I think I think that motivation of doing something that actually the three of us as founders didn't really know. Well, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, and that was fine because we were going to hire, we were going to hire the the real technical experts on the, on the ESG side, on the sustainability side. Um, we'll build the business around those people. Our skill sets are in, you know, the initial vision, holding true to that purpose and values. Um, and me, I mean, I think I, I bring that, that logic, planning, strategy, process to everything, because fundamentally, what we're selling to to our clients is again, it's it, it is a, a sort of inarguable, hopefully, argument that you you cannot talk or begin to credibly talk about the good you you um, purport to do in the world, sort of purpose stuff. Uh, until you've until you've acknowledged your potential to do harm, and well. once so you 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 have to combine these things. You have to um, you have to have a board strategy that is about protecting value at risk. That's the ESG stuff, and about creating value, and that's the purpose stuff. And then you have to really understand that by creating value, this can't be just a marketing ploy to make yourself look good to sell products. Real company purpose is about yes, doing it profitably. That's sort of a given. But you have to be contributing to the well-being of people and planet. Um, you've got to disclose all this stuff. You have to measure it. You have to um, mm. communicate it properly. And the an avalanche of regulation coming that's that's you know making this mandatory for businesses. So, so again, if we're basically selling that argument, we've got to do this thing logically and, and in sequence. Then that that that's sort of quite natural to me. I'm learning every day yeah. about the. You know the, the the sort of ESG regulatory side and the the technical stuff. That that's a process for all of us who um, haven't been hired from that world, and obviously some of the team have been. Mm. Um, but uh, but the underlying sk- skill sets, I think, of that that planning and creative process is 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 inherent in everything we're trying to do.
0: Mm. And how do you? I mean, it it might be very complex. It might be very simple, actually. But with with, I love the the way that you put that you you formed everything around the experts, which is just a lovely way to talk about your team. Um, how do you help those people all talk to each other and work together in in kind of productive ways? Because I can imagine sometimes it's really easy. Sometimes it must be quite difficult. Is there any kind of specific processes you've put in in place to help the different Disciplines work together, or is it simply just you know conversational and you have everyone in the same room? How do you kind of manage that on a day to day process kind of level?
1: Yeah. Um, it's an interesting one. I think that we founded Blood from day one to be really non hierarchical. We always wanted a very flat structure. You know, have minimal job titles. Everyone be hands on, um, and that remains true. So it's a, it's a, it is a very hands on team. We've got. You know, people like my one of our senior partners, Matt Peacock, who's you know genuinely one of the world's foremost ESG experts, um, um, has worked in huge global roles. He's so hands-on, and we're working with a happily with a 22 year old, you know, grad trainee or intern or whatever. Um, so we we just make sure we guard against any any of that hierarchy. Um, I think oddly the COVID the lockdown sort of um, helped in a, in a weird way because the, with the nine of us, I think, at the beginning of that, and there's 26 of us or something. Now, we hired a bunch of people during COVID. We, we didn't actually ever meet face-to-face because we were all locked down. Um, but it's a real level up because we were all just working at homes, all working via, via teams, etc. Um And it was, it was an incredible testament to how well that technology worked, actually, that we were able to still create a real sense of culture throughout that that time now obviously you know there's much more face-to-face interaction um but we just keep that that vibe going that sense of you know all um all just one big team that ultimately we've all got things to teach one another um we have weekly sort of fireside chats where people from all levels of the business will just give a, a sort of hours talk about something they've been reading about making themselves an expert in something they've they've learned about um so it's we can all all teach each other stuff um but it that it's very much about that that sort of non-hierarchical um setup I think
0: mm, and I imagine that that kind of attracts and, and when you are hiring talent you kind of inherently drift towards people who are really curious, who are really wanting to kind of learn from others, regardless of of where they're at. So it's it's it sounds like you've very organically built a, a very open kind of culture that just keeps keeps itself going, really. Which is kind of a dream. I'm not gonna lie.
1: Yeah. No. I, I, look, we have we have really good employee feedback scores on our employee surveys and stuff. It it. But I've always said the culture won't be determined by nick or katie or i the founders can't impose it you know we're just going to be authentic and live live the values that we agreed Mm -hmm. business on day one and they are very much the framework by which we make every decision by which we hire by which we choose whether or not to work with a client and we turn down more work than we take on by the way um but we can't impose that we can just be ourselves and that's the sort of initial dna of the business the culture will be created by the people we hire and how they choose to behave and act and interact with one another. Um and I, I think that's that's what's happening. I could see them them creating it and living it. Um and um you know that's 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 great to see because it means it's it's authentic, it's natural, it's not something that you've sort of artificially tried to construct. Yeah.
0: yeah, shout out to the entire blood team for being a hype. Um <laughs> <laughs> um what i was going to ask you about next is that actually no i'm slightly distracted now but it's the thing that you were saying about covid and combining that with with how you've just spoken about your culture i think it's really interesting because I, I i'm still seeing um a lot of kind of Asian agencies studios consultancies etc talking about how they're they're still sh- struggling to bring back quote-unquote bring back culture um with people working from home and i've never personally understood that because i think yes you do have to be more intentional you have to intentionally put in place times to connect with people but other than that it's really just about the people like you know you and i sitting here in completely different locations but the conversation we're having, I don't think, is that much different than it would be if we were having it face to face, because that's just how that's how we've approached the conversation. And so I I just, I'm on a ramble now, um, but it's just it's so interesting that that's the way you speak about it because I always think it's about the people themselves and and how you come to, you know, a moment or a conversation or a meeting as opposed to something that is only organically built face to face
1: i i completely agree. i look i think ultimately for us the culture is best summed up by just really empowering and giving people permission to be their true selves and bring their whole self to work you do not put on a costume do not you know you are who you are we've hired you to be who you are so the culture is just people being being themselves and i think when When I hear the um, that sort of complaint that struggling to get culture back, I think my response is always: Are you really talking about culture, or are you talking about, I don't know, socializing in the pub, and you miss doing that as much? You know, these are these are those are different things. They they may or may not be important, but that's a that's a different, very specific thing. Or are you really are you really concerned? you don't have enough people in the office on particular days and you're paying a lot of money for that space and you want people in is it sort of i'm yeah i trust people are working when they're at home but i'm still i I wish they were in the office a bit more is that really if you're honest with yourself is that really what the the motivation is i I think often that it's not actually about culture at all because culture will will look after itself if you are if you're a nice place to work and you're and you're authentic and you're living your values and if you have the values in the first place, if you're not, then I think you'll get found out. (laughs) You you might not have had a culture before and either, you know? So, um, yeah, I wonder what they're really, what they're really, really worried about when they say that.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too, because, you know, it's also kind of like, did you actually not have the culture before or was it just better hidden because everyone was in the office?
1: Yeah.
0: Or is it, as you say, about going to the pub it's just it's so interesting and i just it it does concern me at times when with that rhetoric kind of coming back because i was used to it when it when everyone was working from home at first but as someone whose health has dramatically improved from being able to work from home i'm like no don't don't gaslight me into thinking that this is actually negatively affecting the culture you're not coming to it with the right attitude
1: there's a lot of a lot of businesses pushing to get people back into the office. More there's a, a huge and powerful lobby that wants and needs that to happen. If you think of the amount of money wrapped up in commercial office space and the you know amount of money that companies have committed to to leases, I I, I can't sort of get it. But I I don't think you're going to put that stopper back in the bottle. The genie's out, and um, good the best people. They, they they want that flex. It's non-negotiable now. They they're going to need and want that flexibility. We with our office, um, we said this right at the beginning. I think we said it before COVID. Actually, we close the office on Mondays and Fridays anyway. So, the office is only open Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So everyone works from home Mondays and Fridays. Team love that because it gives you the opportunity to you know look. If, if I want to go and see my parents for the weekend, I can stay there and work that from home on the Monday. It just means I'm not. I'm not driving Friday night and driving back Sunday. You know, little things like that make a big difference. No one's in the true. office on a Monday. It's always just, you know, beginning of the week status meetings and half the day is, is meetings to get the week set up. Mm-hmm. Do that from do that from home. Um, so, yeah, so we're, we're Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday anyway, and I think it's – I I sense that that's sort of the balance that most enlightened businesses are settling on, it's sort of fifty-fifty three 50 three days, you know, that. Yes, yeah. sort of, um, we don't mandate that people have to be in those three. Most people are in at least two of them. Yeah. Um, uh, so it was all it was sort of. I know there was a lot of angst about how will we get people back, and the will creativity suffer because you know you, you need the interaction and this this um, apocryphal water cooler that apparently everyone is obsessed by, where apparently the best conversations in the world happen at water coolers. do not remember it's ever happening in my life, but whatever. Um, don't even have a water cooler in the office, but uh, we just sort of left it. I, I remember saying people will want to come back in because the only way you see your friends after work in London is that- by being in the centre of London. So everyone can, it's a come the summer months, lo and behold, people were starting to come in because they want to go and have an evening and see their friends. Um, no one wants to be at home constantly. So I think a lot of it is worrying about nothing to be honest
0: mm-hmm. so it it does sound like though it is that constant thing of just give your employees agency over what they're doing
1: just treating that exactly they're just they are adults. And grown-ups I, I don't need to police how and where you do the work i just want the work to be really good i don't really care if it, if it i don't need to how long it took you to be honest i don't we don't mm-hmm. we don't measure on time we, we don't we don't price on time for this we have hourly rates because Look, if if you can do brilliant work in one hour, go for it. Then you go and have a an hour to yourself. Brilliant. You know you know what I mean. I don't need to know that you 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 did it more quickly than than you've said you did it. Or yes, yeah, just just trust everyone to do the job.
0: Sounds so simple when we put it like that, doesn't it? It's so simple. Um, sorry, I totally took us off on a on a subject for- there, but I was just really interested in how those things kind of combine to to create that that really positive culture one of the things i was talking about and i guess to a point this will probably resonate with you from from your previous years before blood more than now but i was talking to isabel bale on a recent episode and one of the things we talked about um that joe and i actually also talked about as well is cognitive dissonance and i'm wondering have you experienced much of that in your life and career did you feel that at the the old kinds of PR agencies that you were at? Was that part of the, the the problem? You felt like you were believing in something and and not not fully acting on it, and that that was what inspired blurred? Or could you just you know share with us a little bit about if you've had any experience with that?
1: I think a bit of it uh, early, especially early on in the career in my career, where you were you know you're relatively junior and you. I remember just. I remember just thinking, what What is the point of any of this? You know, what is the point of what I'm doing here? Um, filling in spreadsheets and phoning journalists about things they really they don't care about. Um, yeah, and then you proudly, in in sort of old fashioned traditional public relations world, you know, it was a you, it, you you were measured on getting coverage. This word I hate getting coverage for your client, getting the mentions in in the news. Because you, you were the pressure was on to, well, we have got eight articles mentioning mentioning them last month. So this month you have to get nine. You 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 get come up with a clever ways of doing it. You know, but I'm I've, right from day one. I remember looking at it and going, what What's the point in any of this? What What does that mention, out of context mention do? It's um, you see less of it now, but the nonsense survey stories, you know. Pet food company X has surveyed the British public to find out, I don't know, what coloured dog they like the best. I mean, it's just absolute nonsense, nonsense stories that you know get get a company a name check in a newspaper, and we're all we've all convinced ourselves that this is a this is meaningful. It isn't. So yeah, I, so I guess I did I did always experience that in the sense of. I thought my job was pointless for a long time. <laughs> but um I kept I kept doing it because I didn't know what else to do. Um but I, th- I think that did that did evolve and feed into the sense of a lot of a lot of the work that the the creative industries and I mean advertising, marketing, PR, digital, all of that together. A lot of the work is pretty superficial. It's way for thin. Um there is some incredible work, don't get me wrong, that drives you know, real change in the world and is driving real impact. But I always, I guess my cognitive dissonance was when I looked to that, I said, yeah, but the starting point for that work, the work that's really made a difference to the world, the work that's really helped some people somewhere or tackled a problem or addressed an inequality, the starting point for that wasn't wasn't an advertising brief or a PR brief, was it? It was a, it was a, the company saying, we want to fix this problem. Can you help? Yes, we can help. And then we'll be able to tell a great story about that because it's great. Uh, I just think there's a degree of self-delusion in the industry where we, um, we, we tell ourselves that isn't true. And actually, that, that, that definitely has fed into blood. It's, what we want to be doing is working with the board at the top, the CEO, the CFO, helping them understand what the what the harm they cause in the world is, how they need to fix that, and then through fixing it, how you create a really good story to tell creatively. The same sort of end result in a way, but but a completely different um motivation and starting point. And it's you know, the the brief comes from a different place and a more sincere place.
0: Yeah, it's almost like sometimes we talk the talk very well and sometimes the talk turns into the walk. But ideally, we'd start with the walk first.
1: Hundred percent. Well, and 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 that's sort of that is blurred in a nutshell. I suppose that is that is the argument we make. We, we'll help you walk the walk first as as a non-negotiable. But that's what we do. We won't even talk to you about talking the talk until we know that we're walking the walk.
0: Love that. I think, I think the world could do with more of that in general. Um, so our theme, our theme for the month at MediaCat is is hope and kindness which is just everything and i don't know if it's just me um i wonder how much you've experienced this because so much of your work is is so strong and powerful and you know you really set that stake in the ground and it does not budge how much do you do you feel like you get what reaction do you get from 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 people do you get negativity or do you you get more of that kind of hope and kindness because i always think that like if you're angry enough at the world being broken to fix it that's an inherently optimistic act because you believe that you can fix it um but I'm, i'm interested on on your experiences of that especially when you first started doing it i imagine you know it was quite it was more it was more rare and obviously as you say you're pretty much the only the only place that does what you do
1: yeah, we, we had this realization probably this time last year where the nature of the context where we're starting all time and genuinely reading the science and reading the IPCC reports and properly doing what Greta Thunberg does and read this as, as a reason why she's so angry and then and sort of depressed. We realized it's, it's, it's depressing stuff. It's really scary. It's not pleasant. The team... The te- that, that has to have a mental health aspect, uh, impact on all of us, right? Because you're just reading how how screwed up the world is constantly, um, and then individually people will be pessimists or optimists, whatever. But fundamentally, that's quite tough. So we 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 do a lot of sort of stuff on the mental health support side, actually. But my one of my big themes for this year, which I said um, before Christmas to the to the team, was um was hope and optimism and um conviction in every company and every individual citizen's capacity to drive positive change. That that has to be Blur's viewpoint and tone of voice message constantly. We're not here to remind everyone that there are some really big problems in the world and then sort of wallow in in the in the misery. Um now that comes from me personally because I I, I'm very much an optimist about our our capacity to fix the problems we face. I think they're huge. I think we're in for decades of real racial difficulty. But I hundred percent believe in the human uh, in humankind's capacity to engineer and create and think and act our way out of out of the problems we've caused for ourselves. And it is for ourselves, by the way. One of my bugbears is this save the planet rhetoric. The planet's fine. Can I just point it out, the planet doesn't care whether we, we're on it or not.
0: Be good without
1: uh, us. It, it, it'll be better without. us. But I, in fact, I had this chat um, with the team this week. The planet has had five mass extinctions before. Four of them, in fact, were total extinctions going back billions of years. We're living through the sixth one right now. That's that's happening. It's not up for debate. Scientific fact. Things are bad. Um, you read books like David Wallace Wells's this unhabitable earth, which is, you know, like sort of the famous one, and it as it as it will tell you, things are worse than, than you think in, in many ways. But but this is the first time also anywhere in anywhere on this planet, anywhere in the universe, as far as we know, that a species has evolved to have the self-awareness to actively manage its impact on the environment and the entire planetary system. It's it's up to it's up to us. It's up to us people, humans. What a responsibility we've got. Yeah, because we've created some massive issues. But my God, what a what an honour. What an opportunity. Um so I, I my message is always it's the lad, you know, I've got young kids, so I I have to believe this. This is the best time to be alive. Never before, despite the problems, never before have the actions of every individual mattered so much or had the potential to to make a difference so you want purpose you got it right there people that we've all got purpose if you choose to embrace it um so so i'm i'm a big believer in banging that sort of optimism and conviction drum and look there's um and shut me up if i'm going on too long because i could talk about this for no, hours Please i there is so much good news out there we don't read it the news industry doesn't Work on the basis of good news. It doesn't sell. Headlines. It doesn't sell newspapers. It doesn't generate clicks. But it, there is so much out there. And where I mentioned Greta Thunberg, love her, one incredible person. But where she's very wrong, she's, she's right that we're facing a huge problems and climatic tipping points. But where she's actually very wrong is that uh, in in her sort of. Um, She paints a picture of total global inaction by companies and governments. And it's just not correct at all. There is abundant evidence of real action everywhere from the rapid adoption of renewables. You look at the offshore wind in this country, in the UK, it's incredible. We've got Dogger Bank opening this year. Clean, completely clean wind energy for six million homes. That's a quarter of the country's homes. Um, There's increasing adoption of that in emerging markets. Um... The International Renewable Energy Association's projection is uh, half of all power in India will be renewables by 2030. That's incredible progress. We've got a swathe of new EU um, ESG regulations that will mandate in law that all companies with a footprint in the EU have to align with the 1.5-degree pathway. We've got financial frameworks such as GFANS explicitly designed to drive capital, money towards genuine decarbonisation. These are like the big things that are happening. And then there are countless stories of individual humans doing incredible stuff. If you read Charles Clover of the Blue Marine Foundation, incredible guy, incredible organisation. His book Rewilding the Sea, where he talks about incredible work they've done to um, to generate hundreds of thousands of square kilometres of sea as marine protected areas. Um, George Monbiot's book last year, Regenesis, where Sort of, uh, you, you you're nodding. You've seen it, but um, uh, you know, really digging into just how damaging a lot of big scale farming processes are. But he, he talks about this the guy Ian Tollehurst, in there, who's you know, it's just one guy on a plot in Oxfordshire pioneering organic farming and new ways to regenerate the soil. These these are small actions, individual human beings, but collectively millions of people doing that. There is real change happening, and um, I think it's important we know that and believe in it and feel inspired by it. Because what's the um, what's the alternative? It's sort of sitting back and just resigning ourselves to to things just getting worse and worse and worse, and we've got nothing, no power to do anything. Of course, we of course we do. Mm. And That I, was a long answer.
0: No, I love it. I was literally gonna ask you, you know, do you have some some examples, some stories of of, of hope? And you've just given them to me without me even having to <laughs> So thank you for that because I certainly feel a lot better. So I think everyone listening probably will too. It's it's interesting though, I do think it's starting to kind of seep into kind of wider cultural moments, because I know you're a sci fi fan like I am. Um and I wonder if you've kind of heard Jones pointing to many 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 books um have you have you heard and engaged in this kind of hope punk genre that's there's been around for a while but it's kind of bubbling up again and for anyone who doesn't know that the kind of definition is briefly described as stories that free the soul from darkness and it's interesting because it's bubbled back up again because of this show the last of us being 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 out and it is about Essentially, the destruction of the human race, but finding hope within that space. And so, I wonder if if that's something that that you think is is kind of bubbling into into the wider culture as well.
1: Yeah, I, I've got um, I'm sort of skeptical of the the, the terminology, the hope the hope. About. People love to put, create new labels. To yeah, they and love. they me go you Many, many, maybe most stories going back for centuries, thousands of years, um, have fundamentally been grounded in sort of. That's what fairy tales are, right? I mean, I well, we talk about fairy tale ending—you know, it's a, people go through struggles and then everything's everything's happy at the end. I think um, the hope bank is a, is a real reaction to to the uh, grim dark genre that we've seen with you know, Game of Thrones and writers like Joe Abercrombie, who I love. Like really brutal, miserable, depressing, um, dark stories where, yeah, there's no hope at the end of it, really. Things are just, just screwed. But I think that bucked the trend, whereas the um, hope punk movement is probably more of a return to, yeah, just more hopeful storytelling. I know that they often include Lord of the Rings in it, you see, because it's, which is obviously not a new book at all, but is always listed in the as a hope punk book. But, but yeah, no, I think. I, I I don't know that I've observed it as a trend. I I do think that um, stories of hope and optimism and belief in in an individual's capability to um, to create a positive impact and make a difference. So I I think there's a need for it, and I think if there's a need for it, there's probably an appetite for it, and that will drive that will drive the market for more of those books. I mean, I've, I mentioned. I mentioned a couple of books already, you know, like George Monbiot's and Charles Clover's thing. but I think the most life-changing book I read were well, two, actually in the last year it was um, Humankind by um Dutch historian Rutger Bregman, which it, it, it just completely with 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 data and with facts and evidence points all the way through. Points out just actually how amazing human beings are, how fundamentally kind and um, well-intentioned and uh, and sincere we are, because I think we we think the worst of ourselves too often. And I, it was a really it was a real epiphany. And then um, talk about sci-fi, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future. I I tell everyone about that. Um, mm-hmm. Read that about a year ago it's ostensibly a science fiction novel set in the very near future but it's it's really a blueprint a meticulously researched blueprint blueprint for how we get ourselves out of this mess over the next 50 60 years um economically um you know he, he gets into the detail of how cryptocurrencies can help how carbon trading credits will help um it's it's incredible stuff um but i, I think that, I read that and I sent it around that every everyone in the team. I was like, "We basically need to make this make this book happen, make this story happen." Because it, you know, things get bad, but it's really hopeful at the end. It's incredible. So yeah, do do uh, do read Kim Stanley Robinson's
0: Ministry of the Future. Yeah, needless to say, there will be a there will be a book list in in the show notes. Um, in case you were wondering, of course there will be. Um, no, it's it's it's. It's beautiful to know that, to be honest with you, because I, I, I do kind of think of the, the grim dark thing was all going, shit, it's really fucked, shit. And as we all do when something bad happens, when bad things happen, there's a period of time where you essentially mourn the thing that's happened. And then we come out the other side and we go, do you know what? actually, it's going to be okay, to a degree, it's going to be okay. And so I... I'm with you. The first thing I thought when I saw the Hope Punk thing, I was like, "That's every science fiction show ever. That's every science fiction story. That's every fantasy story ever." Is
1: I mean, mean, soundtrack. You can't get you know a a sort of cult series that's more about the basic goodness of humanity and other species and all working together, and uh, you know,
0: and that's why. Exactly, and that's why we'll always be a Trekkie over a Star Wars fan, um, personally. Uh, no. Also, it's incredible to watch the original series of Star Trek and see how many kind of popular films, popular books, popular TV shows are essentially really long versions of one episode of Star Trek from the 1960s. Um, but I, I digress because I could talk about Star Trek for way too long um, and for whatever reason, that's not what we're here to talk about. Exactly. Um, But one last question I will ask you because this is the format I have given myself Um, because you've already given us some some wonderful moments of hope. But my theory that creatives need strategy and vice versa, do you agree? What are your thoughts?
1: Yes, I uh, well, 100%. Um, And I'll go back to what I said at the beginning about um, I'd go further and say that you can't have one without them. they are the same thing so
0: stop trying, to, stop separate
1: trying them. to separate them and if you want to do if you want to do it the process well or if you if you agree that strategy and creative in combination are about genuinely helping a client solve the problem that they should have identified in 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 the brief then um then you sort of have to accept that they are both integrated parts of that process of understanding the problem and finding the solution. Um, so I I, 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 I'm insistent that strategy and creative are the same thing. And then there is a process of bringing that great that, that solution to life artistically and through the craft um, mm. of whatever you know, whatever sort of format or channel you're using. And I'd almost, I almost try not to talk about strategy and creative. I talk about str- strategy and um, finding a solution, problem mm. and solution, and then bringing solution to life. So yeah. sort of, I try and put these other labels away and um, and stay true to that.
0: It comes back to the language, doesn't it? The language we we use for ourselves it it really has massive impact on the way that we think about things. And as soon as you put it in that format, it's quite clear. It's so obvious when you say problem, challenge, you know, execution, essentially. Um, so that gives me hope. So that's so kind of you to do so. I'm, I'm
1: always happy to to uh, bring that spirit of optimism.
0: And wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Stu. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And also, thank you for blood. And thank you all the blood team for doing incredible work because we stand. Oh,
1: well, thank you, thank you, and uh, yeah, thank you to, thank you to my team. They're amazing.